Psalm 132 is 18 verses. We'll read all of those verses together right now. We read there, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So I encourage you to have your Bibles open to that as we work through this this evening. And if you're looking for a key word to to settle on in your mind for the sermon, kids, for you to to focus on, uh, the word dwelling is a big word for us this evening. Well, as we begin, brothers and sisters and boys and girls, uh, we're talking about the conception and birth of Christ. That was the topic of Lord's Day 14 in the Catechism. And so I'd like to begin just by reading a little bit from Matthew chapter 1. We read there, verse 18, that the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now, Jesus has several names. We know he's got many names throughout the scriptures. Why is Emmanuel, the name we just read there, why is that such an important name? The reason it's so important is because of its meaning. Because the name Emmanuel, the meaning of that name, God is with us, gets at the very wonder of the incarnation. That the very Word of God, the Word that was with God in the beginning, the Word that in fact is God, that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's the incarnation. What a wonder. And you know this idea of of dwelling, this, this word with as well, that He is with us, This is a massive theme throughout the Bible. Actually, this is at the very core of our Christian faith, this idea of God being with us. 
The fact that God dwells with his people, you know, that's the thing that makes God's people his people. It's his presence. That's what matters. Exodus 33, we find that God's continued presence with his people is in question. And Moses asked God this, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And this is an issue because of their sin. This is an issue because you understand the, or remember the, um, the story of the golden calf and how the Israelites convinced Aaron to make that um, idolatrous calf out of their gold, and they offered that false worship. And so because of that is why this question is brought up. And, and Moses said, what else is there that will distinguish us from anybody else? It's the presence of God that matters, and sin threatens that presence that God has with us. God's dwelling with his people. Moses found that out, Moses and Israel. But it's really been in question since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it remains a question for all humanity, even to this day. And it's a question that's only answered in Jesus. Only Jesus, only Emmanuel can overcome the separation that exists between God and humanity because of our sin, so that we can live in his presence. That's really the theme this evening, and we're going to look at Psalm 132 closely because this psalm reveals how and why he does this. So first of all, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. This is David's oath to the Lord. That's what's in view here. This psalm is written from the perspective of of after David's rule. So David's gone on, he's died, and this is a song of ascents. It's the... um, One of the last ones, Psalm 134, is the last. Psalm 120 is the first. These were songs that the Israelites sung as they went up to the temple in Jerusalem a few times a year. And and so you just have that picture of a crowd of people, and they're they're climbing the hills to Jerusalem singing these songs. And, And as they sing, they're saying, Lord, remember David. And you say, well, what about David? And they say, well, this is what it's about. It's about how David determined to find a dwelling place for the Lord. He was so determined to find a dwelling place for the Lord that he swore an oath. And so, Lord, remember that oath, the people are saying. Why was David so determined to find a dwelling place for the Lord? Well, because there really was no dwelling place. That was the problem from Israel's perspective. There was no temple. Now, of course, God's everywhere. We know that omnipresent, but his, his special presence is with his people. And so that's, that's why they need for a dwelling place. And um, not only is there no temple, but the ark of the Lord, uh, the ark of the covenant is in Jaar. The people say that in verse 6, we found it in the fields of Jaar. You perhaps can recall this, that Jaar also curious Jerem is the name of the place, not Jerusalem, that's the point. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. If you remember the story that's being referred to here, the Philistines had captured the Ark, or the Philistines if you prefer. If you think back to that time in Israel, the priesthood had completely deteriorated. There was Eli, uh, that old priest who indulged the the wickedness of his sons. You remember Hophni and Phinehas, uh, corrupt priests. And uh, Phinehas' wife has... Uh, a, a baby in her womb, and she gives birth to that baby as she dies, and she gives the baby the name Ichabod. Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. And she says this, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. 
That's why the glory departed from Israel, because the ark of God, she says, has been captured. Eventually, the Philistines return the ark. Uh, There's that great story of the false god Dagon and his temple, and, and the ark is put there, and then he falls over, and they prop him up, and he falls over. Um, and their people, the, the Philistine people, were plagued by God. And so, so the ark was brought back into Israel to this place, Kiriath-Jerim, or Jar, and there it stayed. But 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, where the story picks up, says, Israel longed for the Lord. And if you were reading there, if you had your Bibles open and were reading this story that we're describing, you would wonder, why does it not say Israel longed for the ark? That's what was being talked about, the ark. But it says Israel longed for the Lord. That's because the ark represents his presence, his dwelling. So the ark is, represents the Lord in many ways. You can't distinguish the two because his presence is with his people. That's how he is with his people with this ark, in this ark. We see that in Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. You see that connection there between the two. The Lord is in his ark. That is how he is with his people. But only under David did it come to Jerusalem. First, there was the tragedy of Uzzah. Again, another story that perhaps you recall. It's, it's a perplexing one to a lot of our minds. Uh, the people were excited that the ark was coming back, and, and yet uh, the ark was slipping, and Uzzah tried to, to stop it from falling. You'd think that would be a good thing, and yet he was struck dead. He was struck dead, and he was struck dead because he didn't, along with the rest of the people, treat the ark with the reverence that was required. Just as we come to worship and we come to worship with reverence because we're meeting with God, we're in His presence in a special way, so also that reverence was called for in that time. And the ark should never have been there. The ark was carried out into battle as some kind of lucky charm, but that's not how it was supposed to be treated. And it was supposed to be carried on shoulders with poles, not on a cart like it was when Uzzah reached out to stop it. So the point is God's instructions were not being followed and Uzzah died as a result. And that left fear in the hearts of the people. Fear. And so they left the ark, not all the way at Jerusalem, but yet at this house of a man named Obed-Edom, a man who was blessed for having the ark in his house, by the way. And only later did it come to Jerusalem. But even then, even still, it was intense. The, The tabernacle, right? The portable temple, the tent of dwelling. And so all that is the lead up to say there is a great desire among the Israelites for the temple, particularly David, King David. And we read that in 2 Samuel 7, how he wanted the Lord to have a permanent resting place. Now God, he says this, Isaiah 66, for example, God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being, right? All creation belongs to God. All creation is his kingdom. All creation is his temple, we could say. In fact, Adam and Eve were created to be priest kings, worshiping and ruling within the temple kingdom. So all creation is God's temple, and yet he says to David, despite that, he says, you can build a temple. It's going to be an earthly copy of the heavenly reality, that's language from Hebrews, but your son's going to build it, Solomon, not you. 
And then the temple's finally built. You can read of that in the Old Testament history books. And, and it's just such great rejoicing as the temple is completed. And they dedicate the temple and its ceremony and celebration. And the temple continues to be the focus for Israel throughout the story of Israel because it's God's dwelling place. Verse 7 says it's the place of his presence. Let us go to his dwelling place. And so it's also the place of his worship. Let us worship at his footstool. Those two things go hand in hand, his presence and his worship. It's his resting place, verse 8. And so it is a place of blessing. Verse 9, it's a place where the priests are clothed with righteousness and where the saints shout for joy. But is this blessing complete? Is God's presence with his people forever? Still an open question, really. If you look at verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Do not turn away the face of, do not reject your anointed one. That's still the song and the prayer of the Israelites. Thinking of the anointed one in their minds, they're thinking of the Israelite king after David the king being the representative of God's people, and so the king representing all of Israel and saying, don't reject us. Don't reject your anointed one. Don't reject us. Why would they still have to pray that? Why would they still have to sing that? Because God's presence with Israel is contingent on their obedience. Verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. You see, the relationship with God cannot exist without righteousness on the part of the people. The relationship cannot exist without righteousness. And so they make their request. Again, this first section, we summarize the first 10 verses. Remember, they're saying, remember God. Do not reject us. Be true to your promise. Dwell with us. Show us your favor. And do so for the sake of your servant David. Right? Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, verse 1. And now this leads us to the stunning reversal that we see in the second half of our text, also which we see in 2 Samuel 7, which uh, forms the backdrop for this. David swore an oath to find a dwelling place for the Lord. But what happens is the Lord swore an oath to David instead. That was his response. You're swearing an oath to me. I'm going to swear an oath to you, says God. Rather than you building me a house, I will build a house for you. And we see that here in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. He, 2 Samuel 7 says, is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a promise, a wonderful promise. Verse 17 in our text, the promise continues, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. And of course, Jesus is that horn. Jesus is that lamp. He is the strength of God, the horn, and he is the light of God. Jesus is a son of David, born in the line of David. And you know, as you look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and Luke's account, you see this emphasis in both of them this emphasis on being the son of David. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And later on, Matthew 1, verse 20, the angel says, Joseph, son of David. We read that. And Luke 1, as the angel speaks to Mary, he says, verse 32, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And you know, this is a marvelous thing. Again, we're getting at the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus is God himself. You know, there's an ancient controversy over whether Mary should be called the mother of God. It was a big deal for a while. Is she the mother of God? Can we say that? And brothers and sisters, we can say that. She was the mother of God. Jesus remains true and eternal God is our confession. Even as he comes to earth, he remains true and eternal God. And yet he takes on this true human nature. As the Holy Spirit works conception in the, in the womb of a virgin, God becomes man. And he does this so that he might forever fix the problem of the presence of God dwelling with sinful humanity. Right? That's the problem and he's fixing it. He, he does this so that he might overcome the separation that existed between us and him because of our sin. So that God's favor and God's presence with us would no longer be an open question. It would no longer be a question for us any longer, but, but we would be able to dwell securely with him in his rest. And how is that so? How is this secured for us? Well, our catechism again helps us with some of the language when it says, by his innocence and his perfect holiness. You see, Jesus becomes like us. Like us in every way, Hebrews 4 says, except without sin. He's like us, but he's not like us. He has a true human nature, and yet he does not sin. He was tempted. He was tried. He, was, he, he experienced much suffering, but he never once responded in a sinful way, not even once. And so people talk about the immaculate conception that's a wrong-headed way of thinking about his life, really, because it's an immaculate life that matters. Not the conception, but the life. Immaculate, perfect, sinless. And by the power of that life and in his death and his resurrection, we too are raised to a new life. And so Zechariah can sing. We'll be singing this shortly. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. He remembers. Indeed, the Lord is good and the Lord is gracious. And the Lord has chosen Zion to be his dwelling place. That's verse 13 of our text. He's chosen Zion to be his home, to be his resting place. And why? For what reason? Verse 13 and verse 14, this is great. Because he desires it. Because it's his good pleasure. It's pure grace, that's why he does it. And then notice what verse 14 also says, this is my resting place forever. And so when we read that word Zion, and we, we think that that means Jerusalem, we shouldn't be thinking that this is speaking of the physical earthly city. That's not God's forever home. If it was, we should have perhaps some different political views than we do. We should be much more concerned about the physical state of Israel than we otherwise are. But no, when it says Zion for us, this means the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, which Scripture says is God's people. The city is God's people. Listen to Revelation 21, 
John's vision of the new creation. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. You know, there's something special about a white wedding dress. I actually really like wedding dresses. Perhaps you didn't expect me to say that. But, but the, the pure white of a wedding dress is quite something. As, in, and as much as the, as the vows are the central part uh, of a wedding ceremony, it's true. Yet that moment when the bride comes down the aisle, beautifully dressed, adorned, prepared for her husband, communicates so much in light of this, this text. Her, the innocence, the, the blamelessness, the spotlessness, the purity. That's the church. That's the bride of Christ in Revelation 21. And that's only the case for the bride of Christ because his perfect holiness is what adorns us, what decorates us. He is the one who clothes us with his white robes, the white robes of salvation. But what's the climax of it? What's the best part of it all? that we get to dwell with God. Revelation 21 goes on to say God's dwelling is with humanity. This is the climax. This is the promise. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the new creation, brothers and sisters. This is what it's about. God being with us completely and forever. Us living with him in our forever home, which is God's forever home. And yet in all of this, there is a warning. There has to be a warning. Because where God dwells, sin cannot. And so even with the beauty of this Revelation 21 passage, we've just put our thoughts to for a moment, even with the great beauty of the first few verses, it goes on to say that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. They're destined for the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And it's called the second death. In other words, it's their forever home. And yet, Psalm 132 is a song for God's people uh, to sing. It it leans towards the more optimistic and focuses more on the blessing. But even then, we see a hint of this warning. Verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame. So that's a reality. His enemies I will clothe with shame. They are destined for the second death. But again, Jesus clothes those who are his own with glory, not shame. And so as Israel sang this song, they prayed that the priests would be clothed with righteousness. You see that twice. Clothed with salvation. And now who are the priests? Well, Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the high priest of all high priests, seated at the right hand of the Father's throne. And he's ministering now in the true temple. Remember, the earthly temple was a shadow, a copy of the heavenly reality. He's in the true temple, the dwelling place of the Lord. And through his mediating work, through his priestly work, you and I have become priests of God. That's what we say, right? Prophets, priests, and kings. We have that triple anointing. And so we are clothed with righteousness and salvation. And so we as God's saints then shout for joy. And we will be blessed with provisions, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. 
the complete satisfaction of all that we need. That's what's being described right there. And so at the end of his life, David gave instructions to Solomon, brothers and sisters, and the people for the building of the temple. And he said at that time, the Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people and he has come to dwell in Jerusalem forever. And when David said that, he didn't know the full meaning of what he was saying. But how blessed are we to see this fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, as we saw also this morning, we have the true rest of God, eternal rest. And in Jesus, we have a sure hope that God will dwell with us and be with us forever. Because he swore an oath. And so, beloved, remember that. Thank God that he has remembered his oath to David and that he has, in fact, sworn his own oath. Thank God for the perfect holiness and the innocence of the great son of David because there's no hope without it. After, and after his creation temple had been damaged and polluted, you know, God didn't leave it at that. He just didn't, didn't give it up, but God set about restoring and purifying it because the plan was always greater than an earthly temple and an earthly city. That was never the goal. That was never the plan. That's just, again, a shadow of the reality in heaven. And since we could not go to God to dwell with him in heaven, he came to earth to dwell with us. That's what we're celebrating this week. That's what we always celebrate. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And through Jesus' saving work now, his spirit dwells in the hearts of all believers. And so we worship him at his footstool. And even as we gather in his presence today, we understand that that's not all that there is. It's even easier to understand that now in this time, again, of pandemic restrictions where we can't gather. Because although our worship online is true worship, it's, it's still a pale reflection of what happens when we gather in the fullness of the body of Christ. But even then, even that points us to something greater. Our worship here on earth is a foretaste of the much greater worship that is to come. But that is coming. That is our destiny. And it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that assures us that one day we will dwell with Christ forever. That as his priests, we will be clothed with righteousness and salvation. We'll be shouting for joy in the new creation temple. Amen.